Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Look, if I could just call up the most wanted man in Greece, I wouldn't be sitting here hosting a podcast. I mean, no shade to podcast, but like I would have at least two Lambos and be eating shrimp all day. Now, nobody, and I mean nobody, has seen Vasilis Paliokostas since 2009 when he pulled off that brazen helicopter escape from a high-security prison near Athens. In his absence, though, a legend has grown spreading from backwoods towns to urban centers, and even onto some strange corners of the internet. Like even today, people still tell stories about his generosity, how he robbed banks and billionaires, sharing the wealth with ordinary Greeks. It occurred to us that if we're going to get some real traction with our reporting, we're going to have to get inside this guy's head, CSI him a bit, piece together a psychological profile of the man at large. When you're working on a story and you're trying to understand why or how something happened, sometimes you have to go to the person society considers to be the bad guy. That's investigative journalist Thodoris Hodrogenos, who we spoke with in the last episode. Thodoris has covered crime in Greece for years, and he told us that criminals aren't born. They're created. Anyone can cross a line. Criminals aren't a category of bad people who are born bad and die bad. It's something that's much more dynamic. It can happen to anyone. As our team in Athens began digging into Vasilis's past, trying to trace his path from a rural mountain villager to Interpol's most wanted man, we came to understand that it wasn't just that something happened to him. Someone had happened to him. In the case of Kostas Samaras, we have a man who, in the eyes of the law, is a bad person. He's a criminal. We kept hearing that name, Kostas Samaras. Back in the late 80s, 
Samaras became a sort of mentor to our Robin Hood. He taught Vasilis how to be a criminal, how to pick locks and hotwire cars. But more importantly, he also taught him what kind of criminal he should be. We heard this directly from people who knew the guy. That Samaras was what you would call an intellectual outlaw. He had a point of view on life. He wasn't a thug. He didn't abuse anyone. He didn't kill anyone. He didn't have blood on his hands. That's our producer, Cristina, translating for Kostas Argirusis. Kostas is a journalist who grew up in Samaras' hometown of Trikala. He knew the guy back in the day and remembers hanging out with him at local clubs and stuff. He told us... These guys won people over with their principles of nonviolence and some good old-fashioned wealth redistribution. They helped local people where they could, with other people's money, of course, which was the product of robberies, and they were charming. That's why we're interested in them now. There was a mystery and romance about them. That cloak of mystery and romance has become Vasilis's best disguise. Costa Samaras gave him that. To get closer to Vasilis, we needed to get closer to Samaras. But Samaras has been in and out of jail himself. The people who used to know him, well, they're not so close anymore. So Daphne and our team in Athens started following leads in Trikala. One phone number led to another, then another and another. But then the days went by and we just really weren't sure it would happen. Then, just as the team's getting desperate, Daphne's phone lights up. Shit, it's Samaras. Daphne? Parakalo, Daphne me. A man with a thin voice is on the other line. It's Costa Samaras, and he wants to talk. From Kaleidoscope and iHeart Podcasts, I'm Miles Gray. This is The Good Thief. Chapter One, The Mentor. So at first, Samaras was quite evasive on our calls. He wouldn't really say much. But when we told him that we were planning on driving up to Trikala in a few days, he did seem willing to to plan a meetup. So he asked us about our plans and, and where to meet, which I thought was really encouraging. But then every time we tried to lock down a time for an interview, he ended up bailing. But... We had Samaras's attention, and before long, he turns the tables. Now he's calling us daily, dangling the interview in front of us, toying with us. And then one day... He asked us something strange. He asked us if we'd be willing to take his granddaughter with us up from Athens uh, so that he could see her. It sort of goes without saying, but when I got a call from one of Greece's most famous criminal masterminds, I didn't really know what to expect. But I definitely didn't imagine I'd be offering my services as a chauffeur. That kind of made me confident that he was starting to warm up to us or or trust us in some way. We didn't end up taking her with us in the end, but um, we did offer. The interview dance continues for a bit. And then, in April of 2022... I have served in 12 or 13 different prisons in Greece. Samaras sits down with us, 
Daphne and the team meet him at an office where he works at as an office administrator, part of a prison rehab program. It's after business hours, and they're alone. He's 63, with a kind face, small glasses, snowy white hair, and a beard. He certainly didn't strike us as a career criminal who spent 21 years in prison. When the interview itself started, though, and we actually hit record, each time we asked him a question, his eyes started darting around as if he was sizing us up, trying to gauge our motives before giving us an answer. I thought, okay, this is going to be a short interview. Daphne did not want this to slip away. So she keeps asking questions. And you changed lots of schools, different cities. Did you play in in any band? Trying to warm him up. So what was the first robbery? And did you have weapons with you? And then, after this period of stonewalling us and trying to decipher our motives, his mood just shifts. Samaras cracked open a bottle of uh, fruit juice. He doesn't drink or smoke. It's one of his principles, he says. And then he leaned forward, grabbed a sheet of paper and began doodling, sketching random patterns and shapes as he was speaking. And for the next 45 minutes, he didn't really look up from that paper. It felt like he'd suddenly disappeared from the room, like his memories had put him in some sort of trance. And that's when he started telling us the story from 1991. The first robbery was uh, in Ioannina, um, me and Vasilis. The first time he and Vasilis Paleokostas robbed a bank. Chapter 2 Puppy Love. It all started in the autumn of 1991. With a string of petty robberies under their belts, Vasilis and Samaras were cooling off in the northwestern city of Ioannina. And that's when they decided to try something bigger. The city is not far from the border of Albania. It's a scenic place, too. You've got four-story apartments, narrow cobblestone lanes. Samaras knew that bank robberies didn't happen much up north and figured that a robbery in these parts would take people by surprise. So the two wander around Ioannina, searching for a target. And as they're milling about downtown, on one of the city's busiest streets, that's when they lock eyes on Emboriki Bank. The bank is on uh, the main street of Ioannina, um, Dodoni Street. Uh, <laughs> just opposite the courthouses. <laughs> the challenge made these guys laugh. A small business district with the courthouse and central police station a stone's throw away? It was like the city was daring them to try. The town's geography made the challenge even tougher. In the early 90s, troubles were boiling over in nearby Yugoslavia, so the city was teeming with Greek military personnel. Most crooks, they would have read the room, run the numbers, and just moved on to the next town. But Vasilis and Samaras? Red flags were their idea of fun. First step was a costume change. We had taken camouflage military uniforms and jackets and dressed like a captain and a lieutenant. The military presence, they figured, wasn't a deterrent. It was actually an advantage. If you're wearing a t-shirt and holding a submachine gun, you look like a danger to society. 
But if you're in a military town and holding that same weapon with a uniform on, well, now it just looks like Tuesday. Once they nailed the look, they stole a handful of vehicles and scattered a few getaway cars throughout the region. And after Kimberpool. We used the car we had stolen from Athens, and uh, the second car we had was uh, a jeep, just in case we needed to go to any mountains. This was one of Samaras's early lessons to Vasilis. Always have multiple escape routes and multiple getaway cars. Look, I was concerned about the details. Uh, I'm not like these others who operate more spontaneously with no methodology, no thought. I won't even leave a pin where it shouldn't be. They checked out the twisty roads north and mapped their getaway. But it wasn't just the two of them now. They'd also picked up a straggler. A little puppy. We had the puppy in the jeep, uh, which we'd found in the city of Ceres. Months earlier, the pair had found a stray black-and-white Greek shepherd whining in the bushes. And you can't claim to be bank robbers with a heart and then just abandon a puppy. So the dog joined the crew, naturally. Turns out, the dog was a hellraiser. It loved to chew up the car seats and jump out the window, so you know Vasilis fell in love immediately. The pup was a rebel, a dog after his own heart. They became inseparable. The morning of the heist, the men parked their getaway car a half mile from the bank and locked the dog inside. Now, before you even ask, trust me, it wasn't hot and they would never put the dog in harm's way. The dog is fine. Then they slip into their phony military uniforms, grab their weapons, and wait for the bank to open. At 8 a.m., they swing the door open. Vasilis has a shotgun, and Samaras, he's got an Uzi. We entered like soldiers. No alarm rang. The clock starts ticking. Vasilis went in first. Um, I followed. So Vasilis points the shotgun at the bank teller and throws him a bag. He gestures to the vault and tells him to fill it up. Fast. Samaras, he's standing by the entrance, cradling his Uzi. He watches as the teller stuffs the equivalent of $125,000 into the bag. The safe was open. Uh, he filled the backpack uh, until he didn't fit any more money. Uh, it took uh, just a half minute. The teller gestures to Vasilis that he can't fit any more money into the sack. Vasilis lets him know, Don't worry, we're not greedy. Then he grabs the bag and the two men stroll onto the street like nothing happened. They listen. No sirens. Just the gentle pitter-patter of rain. This is Vasilis's first bank robbery. And it seems to have gone off without a hitch. We got in the car and drive uh, out of Ioannina. Uh, we turn right before leaving the city and enter another neighborhood. Uh, that's where we left the jeep. Um, we parked next to it, opened the door. And just as things feel like they're going great, the puppy jumps out and it starts running around. I mean, this is not the time to cause chaos. But the puppy is zooming up and down the street. He wants to play. 
Vasilis tosses the loot into the car and waves for the dog to get in. But the puppy holds its ground. Vasilis walks toward the dog, but the closer he gets, the more the dog runs. We called it, uh, it did not come. It thought we were playing a game. Samaras's stomach drops. He hadn't accounted for this. He and Vasilis start begging the dog. Please, please come with us. Sirens are wailing. Sounds are echoing off those cobblestones. Vasilis and Samaras frantically gesture to the dog, chasing after it in tandem. But the dog keeps prancing away. The sirens are getting louder, and Samaras starts to panic. Let's leave it, I said. We're wasting time here. We have to leave. Samaras swings open the door and steps into the getaway car. But Vasilis hesitates. He looks at the dog, still wagging its little tail. As the sirens grow closer, he gets in. We abandon the puppy and get into the jeep and drive. Driving out of Ioannina, Vasilis is completely consumed with guilt. Not because he just robbed a bank, his first ever, but because he just lost his little sidekick. But maybe there's even a lesson in here. Spend enough time with Costa Samaras, and even a harmless little puppy will turn into an escape artist. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. 
she would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 3. Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man Reporters have called Costa Samaras the artist because of the elaborate heists he crafted. But according to his old friends, he also came by the nickname honestly. In his 20s, he dabbled in Cubist painting. And that was when he wasn't playing the drums in bands around Tricola. And even when we met with him, he was most comfortable when he was doodling on the page. But his greatest masterpieces have always been the blueprints he drew up for robberies and jailbreaks. Samaras routinely used his drawing skills to sketch plans for his heists. One time, he even sculpted his own gun, whittling it from a piece of wood. Growing up, his family was always on the move, going from one city to the next. We've been told that in the absence of a stable home life, art and literature in particular helped ground him, offered him comfort. One book in particular spoke to him. I read it at the age of uh, 12, 13. Papillon. It felt so authentic to me. It's an autobiography of an illegal Frenchman um, who is sentenced to life in prison for murder. And he has the itch for freedom. He's looking to become free at all times. It affected me deeply. This idea that uh, you don't have to accept a fate that uh, others impose on you. Samaras was one of those kids who refused to take no for an answer. He was smart, liked to game the system, and it wasn't long before he started applying his creativity to petty crime. I started out stealing books and records, uh, just trying my, my hand at it. But just shoving an LP under his coat, that wasn't his style. Instead, the young Samaras invented this contraption, a small box that looked like a present with wrapping paper, which had a secret compartment that he could slip stolen records into. 
Before long, my friends asked for the box so that they could steal records too. Oh, so I let them. And of course, <laughs> they got caught. Now, what kind of feeling does that give a kid starting out on this path? There's a satisfaction when you can do something that others can't do easily. That um, is how it started. Samaras fell in love with the thrill. That delicious rush of adrenaline, of stealing and getting away with it. Committing crimes was fun. During the day, I could be painting. Um, at night, uh, we could be playing music. And then uh, I could go and do a breaking. But as skilled as Samaras was at creating deceptive little inventions and planning petty robberies, perhaps his greatest skill the thing he excelled most at was reading a room. Somehow, Samaras honed an uncanny ability, almost a sixth sense, to detect people who lived on the other side of the law. One day in the late 70s, Samaras was at a pub in Tricola when across the room, he spotted another young man, a guy with a strong mountain accent. And immediately, he felt this kinship. Subconsciously, you recognize it from how a person moves around. I don't know if it's like that in other fields, like if an accountant can recognize another accountant, or an architect, another architect. But he gave me this feeling. I figured um, this is someone who doesn't think much of the law. So I started uh, talking to him. That man was Vasilis's big brother, Nikos Paleokostas. It didn't take long for Samaras to realize that his instincts about Nikos were right. But their origin stories were completely different. Where Samaras committed crimes for the thrill, Nikos was driven by circumstance. Chapter 4, In the Valley of the Clefts. Nikos and his younger brother Vasilis grew up miles from the city, under the peaks of the Pindus Mountains, the spine of Greece. It's a pastoral place, studded with ramshackle huts. Imagine a village without a trace of outside culture. Big, tall mountains, an endless horizon between ravines, this wild beauty that's indescribable. That's Stelios Karagiorgos. Today, he's a museum director in Tricola. But like the Paleocostas boys, his family lived off the land in the Pindus. He actually knew them growing up. And as he tells it, living there is not easy. So the children become adults so young, they don't have things like toys. And as soon as a child is strong enough, there's no way they'd be able to sit at home while dad worked. They'd be put to work too. As Stelios put it, this sort of life hardens people. And it wasn't just Stelios who took notice of how hard the Paleocostas had it. Nikos Selepis was a classmate of the brothers. 
He remembers how Vasilis only had one pair of clothes to wear to school. It was clear to Salepis that the Palacostas family didn't have much money. Vasilis Palacostas always came to school in the same clothes. He wore a pair of corduroy bell-bottom jeans, narrow at the top, and a light brown striped tee, and his hair was down to his eyebrows. But the detail that really sticks out was um, his shoes. There was no one else from his village at the school, so he walked, and, and most of the time his feet were covered in mud when it rained. He couldn't get the mud off. Vasilis walked nearly four hours a day just so he could attend school, and at a certain point it, it just became too much. It's the circumstances, right? He probably thought, going to school every day? What should I do? How can I continue? In other words, he was a poor rural kid without many options. As Stelios puts it, these kids that grow up there, they lived in the wilderness like animals. He said, when you grow up on mountains like this, it makes you fierce inside. The only time they got parented was at night. They'd gather around with their parents around the fireplace, you know eat some bread, and then they'd hear these legends, like folk tales and songs. Breathing in the nighttime air, village children heard stories of the clefts, people who, centuries ago, had called these same mountains home. The clefts emerged in the 1600s, after the Turkish Ottoman Empire conquered mainland Greece. The Ottomans turned Christian Greeks into second-class citizens, So the clefts fled to the mountains, hoping isolation would provide them some independence and safety. To preserve that independence, they had to protect it. The clefts were known to stalk the surrounding highways and rob unsuspecting travelers. They stole lambs and goats from herders wandering their territory. Banditry became their calling card. You know the word kleptomaniac? It comes from the Greek root cleft. But they were more than just thieves. They were on the front line of the fight for Greek independence. Today, they are thought of as Greece's founding fathers, and their stories are told to children with pride. Growing up, the Paleocostas brothers heard these stories and romanticized them. The boys were taken with the cleft way, this idea that banditry could be used to help your people. There was one story in particular that captured Vasilis Paleocosta's imagination. As a kid, Vasilis attended a one-room schoolhouse. When he was maybe eight or nine, his teacher gave him a gift, a leather-bound book about Antonis Katsandonis, the story of one of the most famous clefts, dating back to the 1700s. For Vasilis, there was a lot to like about Katsandonis. They both grew up in the mountains, both were the sons of shepherds, and they both had a strong sense of fairness. But Katsandonis was falsely accused of stealing a sheep and thrown in jail. When he got out, he killed the man who had smeared his name, then joined the clefts. Katsandonis embraced the life, robbing the Ottomans, rallying clefts into an army, freeing Greek slaves along the way. But one day, Katsandonis' luck ran dry. Because somebody snitched. Under the shade of a plane tree, the Ottomans tied his body to the ground, raised their sledgehammers, and proceeded to crush his bones. Ah. 
The story of Katsandonis left a deep mark on young Vasilis. Years later, he'd reflect on the teacher who gave him that book. As Vasilis once wrote, that teacher never had, and never would again, give a personal gift to one of his students. Was it a random act? Insight? Who knows? Every story has a lesson. And for Vasilis, the moral of Katsandonis' downfall was simple. Never trust a rat. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages, they starved us, they beat us, they burned us, and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, 
if someone presented this program to me and not just because I've already experienced it. Sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 5, Going Pro. In the 1970s, the Paleocostas family moved out of the mountains and closer to Tricala. They landed in a small town on the rundown edges of the city. Each day, Nikos and Vasilis's dad would trek into the city for his new job, selling lottery tickets. Dimitris Kutabasiakos is a film director who grew up in the area. And during that time, he started seeing the brothers around town hanging out with Costa Samaras. And Dimitris and his friends were in similar social circles. Uh, Dimitris told us that there was a very famous pool hall in Trikala, the Lion. At the time, Samaras was a well-known person in the neighborhood. And the Paleocostas brothers carried a mystique of their own. Samaras had opened the first live music bar in Trikala, and it was for young people, and it was really something unprecedented. The brothers used to come in and, and play billiards, and according to Dimitris, they played really well. And their name was apparently on everyone's lips, Palocostas, Palocostas, everyone was talking about them, especially the older one. And all the young kids were just very in awe of them. So when Samaras spotted Brother Nikos across the bar and they hit it off, that reputation only grew. Samaras and Nikos started small. They were stealing cars and broke into jewelry shops. And they developed this moral code of crime pretty early. Like, they didn't think of themselves as hard-nosed crooks, more like gentlemen burglars. Through the 80s, Nikos Paleocostas would commit at least 27 burglaries. In that time, he began to hone a virtuosic ability for spotting and escaping the police. That's how he earned the nickname The Ghost. One time, we were notified that a car was speeding down to Trikala. You might remember Vasilis Eftimiu from last episode. He's the police officer who spent two years chasing the Paleocostas brothers. We were already driving up the mountain range, so we picked a point to block it. We got ready for a collision. But 20 or 30 meters before the spot where we planned to trap him, Nikos noticed us. He turned off onto a dirt road, and we lost him. Eftimiu admits that Nikos was incredible behind the wheel. The risks he took on the road just baffled the authorities. His ability to escape was so legendary that years later, the police devised, well, more creative ways to try and ambush him. His mother died. We went to the funeral disguised as priests in case Nikos came. You went as priests? Yes, we had people in the church. They said he was going to say goodbye to his mother. And he didn't end up coming? He didn't show up. But persistence pays off. Around 1989, Nikos caught a bad break and the police arrested him. At the time, Vasilis was barely in his 20s. Unlike Nikos, he wasn't living a life of crime yet. As far as we know, he was busy drinking, hanging out, playing pool. But when he visited his brother in prison, he was immediately enlisted. The ghost 
had no intention of staying behind bars. So he said to his brother, go find Costa Samaras. We had made an appointment in Athens to meet to see what we can do for his brother who was in jail. We went somewhere for coffee. He said, how nice you thieves are with your cars, the chicks, the money. Yes, I said, but uh, that's one side. On the other side is prison. You need to wait them and choose. I'm in, he said. If you are in, I say, let's go for training. Samaras claims that before this moment, Vasilis was a law-abiding citizen. And while it's hard to fact-check that statement, what is true is that this was a turning point. Certainly, when Vasilis and I met, um, he had no particular experience in these matters. He had heard some things from his brother. Um, he had learned a little from him, but uh, from then on, he learned directly from me. So the lessons began. Vasilis and Samaras rented an apartment in Larissa and started planning to break Nikos out. And that's where Vasilis was first exposed to the rules that would dictate the rest of his criminal life. It is true that uh, there was, let's say, a philosophy in the first place, do not do more damage than necessary, especially to human beings. You can be violent with objects, uh, that is to break a door, a safe, but not with people. With people, it's a game like chess. It turned out the prison was a fortress. They'd need an elaborate plan to break Nikos out. So, Samaras drew one up. First, he and Vasilis would case the prison, recording every detail about the prison guard's movements. Then they'd steal a dump truck that they could use to break down the outer prison wall. They'd be prepared with plenty of firepower to scare off the guards when they came running. Last but not least, they'd need getaway cars, multiple hideouts, change of clothes, the works. He was a quick learner and trusted the process. He had the quick mind. But that escape, it never materialized. Something went wrong over there. It didn't work out. To say something went wrong is an understatement. On the day of the planned breakout, Vasilis was making his way, alone, to a stolen getaway car that he'd packed with guns and explosives and left in a village on the outskirts of town. But he'd overlooked one crucial detail. A Greek village is a tight-knit place. People notice even the smallest changes. So when locals spotted an unfamiliar car parked on the side of the road, they got nosy. And when they saw all the weapons stashed in the car, the locals immediately took action. They deflated one of the back tires, enlisted a couple cops, and laid a trap. Sometime later, when Vasilis went to check the car, a group of them were hiding in a dark cafe nearby, watching him. They clocked Vasilis as he approached the car and then watched as he detoured into the wood. Turned out he had to pee. And that's when the villagers ambushed him. They literally caught him with his pants down. Later, the police found it all. The cars, the guns, and ammo. It didn't take Sherlock Holmes to realize that Vasilis had been planning a prison break. Suddenly, Vasilis, a 20-something with a clean record, was sitting in the back of a police cruiser, hands cuffed. And it was about to get worse. 
At the booking station, police decided to charge Vasilis for dozens of petty robberies, the robberies that his brother and Samaras had committed over the past few years. Vasilis had no involvement. He hadn't been involved with us yet, but they wanted to implicate him in all of his crimes. Vasilis was seething. The foiled prison escape, the stolen cars and illegal weapons, that he was happy to own. But all these other crimes? This wasn't justice. Of course, I don't know for sure what went through Vasilis's mind back then. But I like to imagine he was thinking about that leather-bound book his teacher gave him about Katsandonis, the man falsely accused of stealing sheep, who joined the clefts after being wrongly imprisoned. Katsandonis would go on to fight the Ottoman authorities, and he's known for laying the groundwork for Greek independence, a founding father who created the vision of what the Greek nation could become. The stories we tell ourselves about how our great societies came to be, about the people who against all odds made it happen, they're not unique to any one culture. In the same way we grip to our tales of founding fathers, these stories hold together nations, and they inspire individuals on their own paths, like Vasilis Paleocostas, who in this pivotal moment in his life sat in a police station as all the sins of his brother became his to bear. And as he contemplated how to fight back, with the scales of justice tilted hard against him. Well, from that moment on, Vasilis uh, was forced to turn to a life of crime. Next time on The Good Thief. This book is coming from a man who doesn't exist. No one knows where he is. Stand aside! I'm breaking out! It's kind of a symbol of the perception of many Greeks fighting against all odds, fighting against the oppressor. So you believe that there were no casualties? The question should be, who commits a crime and whose crime is greater? The Good Thief is a Kaleidoscope production in partnership with iHeart Podcasts. I'm Miles Gray. Our executive producers are Mangesh Hatikadur, Costas Linos, Oz Wolishin, and Kate Osborne. From iHeart, executive producers are Katrina Norvell and Nikki Etor. Our partners at the Greek Podcast Project are executive producer Daphne Carnizis, field producers Christina Pilioni and George Miaris, and sound designer Nikos Sklavenitis, who's also the voice of Costas Samaras. Mary Phillips Sandy is our supervising producer. Shane McKeon is our producer. The show is written and researched by Lucas Riley. Fact-checking by Danya Suleiman. Initial edit, mix, and sound design for this episode was by Kieran Matthew Banerjee at Palm Tree Island. Sound design and final mix by Soundboard. This episode featured the voice of George Ivaliotis. Our theme song is by Imam Baldi, with additional music by Botany. Finally, thanks to Will Pearson, Connell Byrne, Bob Pittman, and John Marinopoulos.
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing. Right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.